This podcast is supported by Blue Mountain Community College. For over 60 years, BMCC has been committed to educational programs and services that promote personal and professional growth and strengthen our local communities. If you're looking for higher learning opportunities that don't cost a fortune, check out their technical certificates, college transfer degrees, workforce development programs, and much more. To learn more, check out bluecc.edu or stop in at one of their many facilities throughout Eastern Oregon. Thanks again for listening. All right, so welcome into the Eastern Oregon Think Tank, also referred loving to lovingly as Chat PDT, not Chat GPT, because we are not AI robots. I don't like Avatar the movie. I don't like avatars in real life. I don't like avatars when people use them on their computers. We are here to drop some knowledge bombs. Ryan's going to be joining us shortly. He's finishing up a Zoom call. I got Blake straight ahead, and I got Shannon to my right. Howdy. I wanted to start with Shannon. Shan the man. Uh oh, pressure. Had a new child. Woo! I did. Congratulations, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Do you have any stories to share? Yeah, my son peed in his own face and drank it. Like direct, like stream and caught it in his mouth? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. That's why you need uh, the PPTP. The PPTP? What's yeah, that? It blocks the pee while you're changing their diaper. This you just so put funny. a little teepee over yep. top of them? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we were, Jenny and I were literally just talking about like, there's got to be, there's got to be some, something to help with this. <laughs> you can imagine, not yeah. just redirect it. Exactly. <laughs> just, just goes up and comes right back down on your kid and puddles. So, but really though, so this was like fountain stream over his chest and into his mouth. Yeah. And was he just taking it like a water fountain? I mean, not only in his mouth, but like in his mouth, on his face. Was he upset or was he just... I don't even think he knows what's going on. (laughs) He's just like, that's awesome. And then my, my oldest daughter, she's watching and she's like, she's like, James peed on his face and he's drinking it. He's drinking it. (laughs) It'd be like a X factor show. Like you go on a a show as a trick. What are the odds that someone's listening to this and they're going to try this later? And you'll lay down somewhere and see if they can like an projectile urine into their face. (laughs) I'm think, sure there's people out there that do it, Blake. I don't think among our listeners, very many people are going to attempt that. <laughs> well, if you do, please send us a video. <laughs> we'll feature you on social media page. That sounds like a video that would be on uh, the YMH podcast, it's the Tom Segura's podcast, the Your Mom's House podcast. They always watch crazy videos like that. Well, Shannon, when we talked, you were you had not done a gender reveal. No, we hadn't. And you were waiting until birth, and then you are going to pick the name even. Yep. So tell me about that process. How did that end up going? Well, didn't even have to wait to see the private parts to know what gender this baby is going to be. Because its head popped out, and immediately I knew, that's a boy. <laughs> there was no way this was a little baby girl's head. <laughs> it was ginormous, huge cheeks. And I was like, it, his head popped out. And I was like, that's a boy. <laughs> and the doctor and nurse were like, yeah, you're probably right. Safe assumption. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then sure enough, uh, he came out and uh, they were like, what is he? What is he? Because I had kind of forgot. And I looked down and he had a little thing dangling there. So, yeah. And then you. I knew. The, how about the name part? 
the name part. Um, so his name is James Noble Hartley. And uh, we just, we've always loved the name James. Um, it's biblical, but it also is just a name that we really like. And it sounds really good with the last name we feel like. James is a strong name. I like that name. Yeah, it's a strong name. It's classic. I feel like our generation is going a lot with um, like the names of our grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of, I mean, James is always a popular name, but I feel like it's been more of a popular middle name. Um, like all my friends growing up, like their middle names were, were James. Was there any uh, deliberation over the name before you landed on the final name or had you narrowed the boy name down to James? Uh, yeah, so whether it was going to be uh, a girl or boy, we had, I mean, at the very end, we were we were set and we were ready for names. But up until like a week, two weeks beforehand, we were still deliberating between three to five names mm-hmm. for for each gender. And uh, we had some good ones picked out. It was really, it was really tough. Um especially because this was our first boy. So we had had lots of names in the chamber um, ready to go, which I can't talk about because if we happen to have another child, I can't, give away, I can't give away our names. Be swiping them. No, yeah. Swiper, stop swiping. Exactly. But um, James has been a great baby so far. He, I mean, he pees in his face, yes, but he... It's just I, a party trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell him that when he's when he's older. <laughs> you know what you used to do for a party trick. Um, but no, he's uh he's been phenomenal. He's he's not colicky. Um he sleeps really well, he eats really well, and um he's pretty easy to get along with. From what I remember the beginning part when they're first born, they sleep pretty well, and it's not till a little bit later that they get fussy. Oh so, gosh, well. So right now I think you're in the kind of the golden time. The golden shower time. The golden <laughs> that pun was intended. Um okay, well, I hope it stays the same. <laughs> it could. Some kids stay like that. No, yeah. No, no. They stay golden pony pony boy. Stay golden pony boy. Uh, speaking of party tricks little kids, I don't have kids yet, but when you said that, um in a similar vein, I have a cousin that when he was a little boy he'd be bathing and they'd always be like um grab your belly button grab your belly button and one time he was in the bathtub and they said touch your belly button and he grabbed his you know his boy parts and they laughed so hard and so for like two years of this kid's life anytime someone would say where's your belly button he'd grab his (laughs) junk uh it was that was the ultimate you know when you were in an inappropriate setting like hey where's your belly button just hand in the pants (laughs) (laughs) well if it gets a laugh yeah oh that that does remind me um so i cut the umbilical cord and when I went to go do that, I realized on my second final cut, his penis was pretty <laughs> close to my cut. Circumcised I, him to start. I, I almost, yeah, almost circumcised <laughs> my son right there on the spot. But uh, our doctor, Dr. Wynn, she like was sure to, to block. I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> Not letting it happen again. <laughs> I had yeah. a buddy um, while we're just on this weird topic that um, he, they were done having kids and he went in to get a vasectomy and i asked him how it went he's like oh my wife did it and i was like 
what do you mean? He goes, yeah, yeah, Megan, Megan did my vasectomy, or she, she did it. And I was something like, you went in to get a vasectomy, and your wife ended up getting your tubes tied? Like, how did you pull that ultimate 180? And then he continues to tell me the story. He was sitting there to get his vasectomy, and his wife was standing back there by the doctor. And the doctor's like, you want to do it? And uh, he handed his wife the scissors and just said, cut there, cut there, cut there. The dude's wife literally cut his... Um, Vast deference. And wow. uh, yeah, that's that's bold, man. That's was she a trained medical professional? Not one ounce of medical professional in her. That is really bizarre. Yeah, I would think that'd be a little bit risky as a, you know, surgeon. But anyway, should we should we rein it in and, and get to some profound thoughts? Well, you know, this has been a lot of chalk talk. I, I like it, but a little chalk talk. Tell me about um, Mr. Blake. Did you have any big thoughts for the week? So my thoughts, I've been pondering some quotes this week. And so um, I not only listen to the Eastern Oregon Connection, but I also listen to several other podcasts. And one of the podcasts I listen to is the John Maxwell Leadership Podcast. And he had a quote about decisions and discipline. And it's kind of long, but it it went like this. And I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts are. Um, Good decisions without Daily discipline equals a plan without a payoff. Daily discipline without good decisions equals a regimen without a reward. Decisions are about goal setting. Discipline is about goal getting. You need both. Hmm. Tell me what you thought when you heard that at first. Say that last part again real quick. Decisions are about goal getting. Discipline, sorry, decisions are about goal setting. Discipline is about goal getting. Um, and so I just, as I did this, I think a lot of us, we have aspirations and we work hard without seeing the fruits of our labor. And is it a question of we're taking shots, but we haven't really directed our arrow. And then I think we have the other extreme where people think so much about what they want that they're paralyzed into not taking action. And this quote really made me think about the interplay of you need wise counsel. You need to think you need to be precise in what you're doing but you also have to do it. That's analysis paralysis. That's what yeah. I was just going to say is I find myself in that boat a lot, whether I'm trying to learn something new or um, <laughs> like, I feel like the YouTube generation, like we can get lost in like how to do something and watch a million videos on YouTube with, for, for how to do it and mm-hmm. not actually start the project. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to try something, fail and learn from it and do it again. And, and uh, yeah, but we can say something Blaine. Uh, yeah, I mean, this ends up, I, I think we, you know what, I, I, I can't remember if I said this on the last podcast, I've given up trying to remember what we've talked about before, so I'm just going to steamroll forward. We talked, um, or I've talked a lot about Napoleon Hill before and some of his different quotes, and he was a influential thought leader for me personally and kind of my growth, and one of the things he talks about with goals is that a, um, a goal is a dream with a deadline Mm -hmm. and that your version of the explanation almost takes that idea and distills it down a little bit further about how you achieve those objectives uh, in particular, right? Because, and obviously his workshops and talks do the same thing. That's just kind of the headline, but for sure. Um, I think that's kind of a tried, true, and tested methodology for 
moving forward and having success is sure. kind of that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So the next quote, I have three. Um, this one's much simpler, much shorter. It's by Kobe Bryant. And it's, you can't block dunks. And the context of that <laughs> quote is Kobe Bryant was a prolific basketball player. There were other players paid millions and millions of dollars every year to try to stop Kobe Bryant. Yet Kobe Bryant still put up 81 points in a game. And his simple, you can't block dunks is, if you just get good enough, no one can stop you. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Hmm. First of all, I love that quote as a basketball player. It's just so simple, too. You know, you can't block dunks. You can't block dunks. I'm sure he told so many big men that. Yeah. He was so, like, Shaq, like, just frustrated playing with other big men who were just, like, trash. And it's like, you're seven feet tall. Dunk the basketball. Yeah, can't block dunks, man. I was actually watching a video recently uh, where he was talking to a player, and it was, like, that same sentiment. Um, but you can't block dunks. I'm trying to really wrap my head around that and how that like applies to other people in in life um i mean what what did you take away from it like applying it to like real life you know when i think about dunking a basketball you are going directly to your target and asserting your goal directly to and through the target right and so there are a lot of the times if you're out on the three-point line or if you're shooting free throws there's a lot of things or potential um, trajectories that can change between you and the basket in order to accomplish things if you take them head-on and you just steamroll forward until you are at the destination at your goal at that point there's nothing that can stop you once you put your hand essentially inside of the hoop with the basketball you know we just scored when you toss a three there's a, a point where you're not sure if this is gonna land correctly or not right mm-hmm. and you can score from anywhere on a basketball court you can you can have success from a lot of areas in life but ultimately if you want to ensure that something's not gonna fail you have to see it through to like the ultimate end. So what you're saying is if you take high percentage risks or high percentage shots that you're going to have a higher degree of success. I, th- I think that's one of the takeaways that I think that the fallacy is you can block dunks in basketball. So um, one of the things that I first thought about was you can the also fact miss that dunks. You can miss dunks <laughs> go off the back rim. Um, there are just sometimes transcendent players that are better than everybody else. And the way that they've changed the rules in the NBA so much from the 70s and 80s and then the early 90s to start removing things like hand checking and uh, being able to body up on defenders gave the offense so much of an advantage, especially when you're trying to get around the basket and you're dunking Mm -hmm. that that advantage goes to the offense as opposed to the defense. When Robert Parrish or Bill Russell were playing defenses could be dominant. You could win championships solely through defense. And I think the last team that did that solely through defense was the Pistons um, in the early 2000s. Three Oh four. Yeah. And I don't think that, I mean, some of the Spurs teams were, fairly dominant defensively, but they also had Tim Duncan, one of the best offensive players of all time. So I, I guess my takeaway is that <clears throat> if you're really, really good at something and you have a dominant offense, then you're forcing other people to play defense and that's a good position to be in, but it's more of a rarity. And so I think for the average person, you should try and be 
good at both because you're probably going to be doing both. I don't think it's realistic to assume that everybody's going to be a prolific Kobe type yeah. offensive force in whatever they're doing. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on, um, you made the comment, Blaine, at the beginning of that statement about how everyone kind of is endowed differently or we might not all have the same skill set, you know, and when people think about Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or some of these prolific athletes, I think sometimes we immediately discard it as, yeah, they just, they're just born with it or whatever. But, you know, there's Kobe, for example, there's a lot of stories of Kobe Bryant was there at three in the morning, you know, practicing and stuff. And what is the balance for you guys as individuals between being realistic with what we can accomplish and not just settling well welcome in ryan welcome hey. in thank you for joining us good to be here boys shan the man did you have some thoughts on that well before uh before we get to that one i wanted to go back and i think i think the main idea with uh with kobe's quote of it, the quote was you you can't block you can't block a dunk um i think what he's saying is play to your strengths hmm. and um I just like Kobe's the kind of guy that he could never stand, you know, for players who who wasted a possession. Mm -hmm. And if you got a big guy shooting a three who's not practicing, he would always get bothered by, um, you know, he'd be outworking everyone. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that, that was that was his other thing is like that's why he took so many shots because he knows he's always outworking everyone else. So why would I give you the ball I when I'm order. perfecting my craft every day? I am in the gym at. 3 a.m. and the last one leaving um but yeah as far as um that quote i think he's just saying play to your strengths whatever you're best at do that that's what this team needs you to do and how that applies in real life is uh, you could go a million different ways but um sticking to your like there's there's the conversation about like you want to get better in your weak spots um and that's an interesting conversation to have with you guys is like do we try and get better at our weak spots or do we need to maximize our strengths first and just concentrate on those? And is that going to get us the furthest? Um, I think Kobe's getting to that, like playing to your strengths is going to get us the furthest to where we want to go. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my takeaway for that. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to rephrase your question again? The, no, we, the, the we, we can just question? drop it and go with what you just said. What do you, what do you guys think is the balance between you know playing to your strengths versus maybe being aware and starting to address your weaknesses? Yeah, and I'm guilty of sort of what what you brought up briefly before was <clears throat> I've been guilty of saying like, man, I could sit here and I could spend 12 hours a day trying to master my craft of whatever it is, free throws or or throwing as hard as I can or whatever. And, and there's just people that are born with a skill set or a genetic makeup that's that's going to allow them to be better than I am, no matter how hard and, and furious you work. And I think that's a tough mentality <clears throat> to put yourself in. Um, there might be some grain of truth to that, but I think that that understates the value of trying to master a craft. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> as far as addressing your strengths and weaknesses, it's a good question because I think it's important to be a well-rounded individual and maybe I lean more towards like jack of all trades. I think that's really important, but you know, there's something to be said about being exceptional at a smaller group of things. And we kind of talked about this a couple of recordings ago when, when, uh, you know, Blaine talked about the workplace and what kind of work calls to people. And he said, start with what you're really good at mm -hmm. and, and know what your strengths are and then build to that. And I guess that makes sense to some degree, because if you're, 
you know, below average at 50 different things, um, the work environment and your ability to excel is probably going to be different than if you are exceptionally gifted at three or four things. So, well, one of the things that I think about is if we broadly talk about these different topic areas of strengths, and there are so many, I'm just going to name a couple that come to mind. Things like, are you mechanically inclined? Are you inclined toward writing, math, kind of these intellectual pursuits? Are you inclined toward running or a sport like golf or baseball? Does that kind of come naturally to you? Um, things like carpentry versus art. And then to what degree do early interests play versus something like a mimetic desire? Is that something that's your desire or did somebody kind of ingrain that want onto you? And then once you have these things, how introspective are you being about these different desires and whether they fulfill some sort of interior need, if it's just a skill you're excelling at, or what role those kind of different those things play in your life and the reason i kind of i kind of explain or give this um example or context around this is that i think that that helps to shape y your level of understanding of those things helps to shape what you do with those things so let's just take an example um math and writing i hear so many people say I am bad at math or I'm, I'm really good at writing, but I always struggled at math. But you don't very often hear people say, I'm a terrible writer. I mean, sometimes they do, but it's, it's way less frequent than people are almost proud that they're bad at math. <laughs> and to what extent is that a construct or that other mm -hmm. people have made it okay to be mad at math versus you're not allowed to be bad at writing? And then we see all of the government mandates around no child left behind and we're going to focus on writing we're going to focus on reading but we're not focusing on math apparently so how much of that is somebody that's believes internally that they actually are good at math versus they're being told that they're really good at writing and focus on writing and i think we need to to realize these things because i think anybody and blake i think probably has a strong opinion about this I think anybody can be good, can become good at something if they have the desire and some basic level of skill set. And that has to do also with your mental acuity and your ability to kind of read, process, digest, and pick up on things. If you don't have that kind of base level, then you may not get there. But we talk, Blake, about being a baby and you know not desiring caffeine as a mm -hmm. baby, right? Babies don't have a desire for caffeine. My baby is making me want caffeine though. Right, <laughs> which is fair. Um, and for some reason you want um, shots of uh, gold flavoring in your coffee. Um, so Blake, I, I guess with that new kind of framework in mind, does that spark any different directions for you for sure i mean when you're talking about um the the math good reading writing i mean i go back to mindset i think that's something we've instilled in people is either that fixed or growth mindset and for some reason you're you're totally right there's this fixed mindset around i'm bad at math i'll never be good at math and i think why perhaps people can take to reading 
over time is that reading encompasses such a wide variety of topics. If you like sports, you can read about sports. If you like hiking, you can read about hiking. You know, if you like law, you can read about law. Math seems much more nuanced. And so I don't think it's that people are inherently bad at math. I think it's math is less interesting. There's a, a higher hurdle to learn and pursue over time. It's harder to gauge interest. And so because we're not willing to put in the work, we attribute ourselves as bad at math. And I think that is going to carry over to a lot of topics in life. And I, I believe you're correct when you say, is there a mimetic desire and early interest? A lot of the things we're good at, we've gotten good at either because A, we were natural at it. And so we liked that. Or B, we were so interested in it, we continued to pursue it over time. Mm-hmm. And, and that is where I think a lot of people, the disconnect is, it's not that you don't have the capacity to get good at this. It's you don't have the interest to remain consistent long enough to get good at this. Right. Well, and what you're, I think that you raised a good point about when we think about topic areas, are they deep or are they wide? Mm. And math is very deep and not very wide. Yeah. I mean, I obviously people would argue with that. Calculus, algebra, whatever. Right. But trig. I mean, and numbers are infinite. Like I get all that. But what Mm -hmm. I'm saying is your point is well taken that if we're talking about topic areas, and the diversity of issues that you can talk about with writing or reading, that's a far wider breadth of things that you can explore. Whereas math is numbers and equations and all these kind of aspects that have to do with that. You can learn all that. And yet I I understand that some people are going to argue that's wide, but to me, that's really deep and not very wide. Whereas writing and reading is very, very wide. Well, and there's this concept, Malcolm Gladwell founded of 10,000 hours, right? Of if you put in 10,000 hours doing something, you have probably become a a certain level of mastery with that thing. With math, it's very easy for us in our day-to-day lives to avoid doing any sort of math outside of using my phone calculator, et cetera. You know, for a lot of people, once we're done with high school, I don't really have to do much math ever again. Whereas reading, writing, those things um, are ingrained in our speech. They're ingrained in pretty much any job you're going to do. And so just as a byproduct of we do those things consistently, we are, whether we're doing it intentionally or not, we are practicing those things. And over time, we become better at those things. And I, I think that principle is applied to everything in life. We just, again, don't always have the desire to pursue and show up to do that thing. Yeah, those... Go ahead. I mean, reading and writing, those aren't things you can hide from in the world. (laughs) That's kind of what I was going to get to as well, Blake, is, you know, what's the one thing like people in high school always say? When am I going to use this math? Like, (laughs) people don't feel like they're going to need to use math outside of, you know, simple percentages or, or whatever it may be. But if you don't know how to read or write well, you're going to feel dumb. Yeah. And people don't want to feel dumb. <laughs> but would, you can hide away from math. And I would push back a little bit, though, and say that maybe you can't hide away from math and that maybe the perspective and the lens with which you view the world is based on your knowledge and understanding. And so maybe somebody who has a deep uh, knowledge and understanding of history uses that information to paint context to their day-to-day life. And I would say the same for mathematics. Maybe... maybe um, you're not necessarily, you know, pulling out your calculator every five minutes to understand things as you're operating throughout the day. But maybe statistics and analysis and algebraic functions are the way that you think and communicate and make decisions throughout your day to day life. So so I, I I would say that it is a little bit more prevalent than we might think with the, the context of our knowledge and understanding and how we apply that in the world. Well, and I, I go back to a quote, um, and I believe this is by Dale Carnegie as there's no 
uninteresting topics, just uninterested people, right? And I think what you just laid out, Ryan, um, where my mind went is you hear a lot of people say um, you made a very calculated decision or something. And it's not like you're thinking like, okay, but but algorithms in our mind, you know, if I do this, this will happen. And, and that's something that as we're trying to learn a new skill or take on a new hobby, I think sometimes we have to look at it through a different lens. Math is not just two plus two equals four and the square root of this is that. Math carries over to how do I analyze situations and see possible outcomes? You know, we all did these story problems in school where you read the story of all these different things that happen and you try to determine the outcome. That is where math fits into everyone's lives and helps us make better decisions. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we often connect those things. We just think of math as trigonometry or algebra. Math carries over to are you a systematic thinker that's going to be able to get three or four moves ahead of what's currently happening to make the best long-term decision? Mm -hmm. Well, and not to mention in the sports world, you can't help but see... Uh, data and analytics and stuff that is used for entertainment purposes. When they, there's a commercial, they say, "Oh, the, this person had a two percent chance of making this catch based on all these inputs or whatever." But, but also behind the scenes, the way that you train your athletes, the things that you try to push as emphasis for them, um, where you position them on the field, all of that is determined by mathematics. You know, yeah, like the money ball phenomena. Hundred percent. Well, one of the things that I think about, and, and Blake was sitting on this point, but when I think about if my kids ever complain about doing math, which one of them will and one of them won't, is that math and learning math is not really about math. It's about learning another way to use logic and learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to learn about topics that you may not love, but you still need to be able to engage with them, learn about them and master them. And that's part of life. It's kind of this idea where, you know how we talk about work a lot and loving what you do and finding what you love. And then my argument against that was find something that you're really good at and then the love will kind of follow. What a lot of people that are leaving the workforce or are leaving their jobs and want to go and pursue something that they really love fail to realize is that most people don't necessarily really like their job. The, the happy few that really, really love their job set themselves up into that position to find something that was a really good fit for them. And it's a little bit of luck and a little bit of them also being flexible with what they're doing, with what their role is. And I would argue that for everybody, there's bad days. And it doesn't mean that every day is going to be great, but it doesn't mean that you need to go and find a new job. You need to find what in that job excites you. And so math and not loving learning math is another way of coming to terms with the fact that not all life is fun mm -hmm. and you have to be able to get through it. Mm -hmm. And adversity too, I think about... Um how, how good are you going to feel if you think, I'm really terrible at this, this is a weakness of mine, maybe I can't even overcome it, but uh, you slog through, you get tutoring, you do what, what it takes, and to be able to tell yourself, like, this was something that I could not accomplish, I, I felt like, and here I am with a passing grade and a better understanding of something that I was not good at, so, yeah. Yeah, overcoming I mean, that this, this is part of what employers, I mean, look at, because... Uh, you know, people might not love uh, math or other subjects in school, but 
um, they want to know that you have the adversity to make it through university mm-hmm. and and get through that and you can work a job and you're and you're a hard worker um, you know some some jobs you need to you know become a doctor and have a lot more schooling and be very um, have those certain skills but a lot of degrees um, you know employers just look at like okay well you made it through university you could do this job here like and we appreciate that that's exactly what I was thinking about when Blaine was talking to Shannon is and and I think you know we, we all say that when we're in college it's like I don't know I have to take all these dumb prerequisites or anymore you hear like an employer doesn't even care what your degree's in they just want to know you have a degree at a certain point people just want to see that you have the work ethic to work through hard things exactly and that, that's so important in life in anything because mm-hmm. most things worth having don't come easily yep. you're gonna have to do some things you don't want to do so Blake, that, that was your kind of quotes. Did you have any more quotes? I have one more I'll throw out there. Um, and this is this is probably more around habit formation. Um, this is from Impact Theories. Tom Bilyeu is the, the host of that, another great podcast. Love that podcast. Um, and it says, you are born looking like your parents, but you die looking like your decisions. Ooh. Ooh. That's good. That's very good. I feel like that's my story wrapped up in one quote. <laughs> really? Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, my family just had some really unhealthy habits and it would have been, well, I mean, in my childhood, I was I was living in that and I had like right after I graduated high school, I had to change those habits like 180 and uh, I feel like I've done a pretty good job since then of, of uh, creating better habits and uh, new ways of thinking um, and I think it's been for the better. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things I could get into specifically, but just generally, yeah. I, I always come back to um, <clears throat> uh, A Knight's Tale, the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, good movie. It's I really movie. love that movie uh, because when he says, William, like, you can change your stars, like, that type thing. I've always had that idea in my head, like, you can change your stars. Mm-hmm. You can go from this to that. And, uh, and uh, that's... Yeah, kind of how I've summed up my life essentially is like changing my stars. So, I think that that's a. I think that to an extent, everybody is their decisions. I I also think about the quote where, you know, they there's this quote: "The older I get, the more my parents look smart," or something like that, hmm. or the smarter my parents look. And there's this idea when you're younger, especially as a teenager, and you think your parents are the dumbest people on earth, and they just don't understand you or you're going through this angst and turmoil and they couldn't possibly understand. And then you get older and you realize that they knew exactly what you're going through and they were just trying to help the best they could. Um, But I like this idea that you are not bound by your, where, where in society you're born or Mm -hmm. something like this, where you're cast that's a very American idea that you can rise up and become greater than the sum of the parts kind of a thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just think it's a testament to, yeah, we all are going to emulate our parents, but ultimately our fate is in our own hands. And, Mm -hmm. and I think we need to take ownership in that. And and hopefully um, you can help change your family's legacy along the way. You know, my, I, I am super blessed. I have two amazing parents. Um, and they are my greatest supporters. They've helped me make me who I am, but they're not flawless. And, you know, um, I have seen as I've become firmly founded in, in habits, whether that is around health or finances or different things that the pendulum has almost swung to like, my parents will 
seek out advice from myself, you know, and, and if our goal is to take what our parents taught us and build on that, hopefully at some point you can have a relationship with them where you're not the parent now, but you have built on the foundation they've given you and, and now you can be the one to lend guidance. Yeah. We stand on the shoulder of giants, right? Yeah. And it's funny cause I think sometimes I think about my parents and I think maybe I've embodied like the worst parts of each of them. And sometimes I think maybe I've embodied the best, but in reality, you, you know, you, I guess you're really your own person. And when you think about like legacy and generations from your parents, you know, it's easy to maybe think about like the career path and did you land above, below and about the same as where they did. But the other thing that I think strongly about is um, just like our family life. And, um, you know, my parents were divorced. I never even knew them to be together. So I grew up with that separated family. And I think that, you know, Carly and I got together fairly young and we uh, were aware of all those statistics. You know, she came from a separated family as well. So it's like if two two children of divorced parents get together, then they're exponentially more likely to separate and have a broken family of their own or whatever. And so that's where that math comes in. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> with, yeah. the, with the numbers. <laughs> May the odds ever be in your favor. <laughs> but anyway, I guess a point of, of pride for me thus far is that we've uh, collectively, Carly and I have worked hard to be together and, and stabilize the family unit and for that to be a real uh, point of emphasis and strength in our home. So, so good. So good. So I, I'll shift gears a little bit. I do estate planning as part of my work, and estate planning, generally speaking, are things like um, wills and trusts. They can include things like a power of attorney, um, advanced medical directive, a living will, which, um, if you are permanently. Um, if you're permanently unconscious and there's no likelihood of you ever being rehabilitated or you're in a vegetative state that um, they're going to discontinue your life, that, that's a living will versus a regular will passes down your generational wealth from um, you to your heirs. And then um, a lot of the other documents that kind of go along with these estate planning things that people are developing. And as I was going through my own estate plan, one of the things that popped up was the idea of an obituary. And it got me thinking about whether people pre-write their obituary themselves. Mm. And then it made me think about what would I want in my obituary? What would I want it to say? What's the headline? What's the byline? What's the last thing that it's going to say? And if you guys could, would you write your own obituary? And then also, what do you, what's the most important thing to you? What, what do you want your legacy to be in the obituary that people remember you for in a hundred years from now? It's a deep question. Uh, I would not want to write my own obituary. I want to know how other people remembered me, not this um, fairy tale I had of myself. There was, I used to listen to Tim Ferriss a lot, and he, he used to pose the question, what will people say at your funeral? Very much the same vein. And that was a really profound question for me that, that really changed probably the trajectory of my life, because I would say when I was in my early college years, I, I wouldn't say I was a bad person by any means, but I was very selfish. You know, my life revolved around, I'm going to do my schoolwork, I'm going to go to the gym, et cetera. And I realized I wasn't really making an impact beyond myself. And... um 
so my goal in life, I obviously still push to be the best version of myself, but I want to live a life that helps make other people's lives better. And, and so I would hope at my, in my obituary, at my funeral, um, people would be able to stand up and talk about the impact that I've had on them in a positive way. Um, and I think that will probably span largely, um, faith and fitness. Um, but as an individual, um, I want to know that me being on this earth collectively made other people's lives better. It's good. Yeah. I like that. Um, that question used to make me feel like you were supposed to feel bad about it. Like, uh, like you're what you think you're the center of the universe or something like that, that you've got, I don't know, it is a weird thing for me, but, but I think it's important exercise to give perspective to what you credit the most meaning to. Cause that's what it is, is if people remember you, what's it for that? Like try to boil yourself down to one important value. And I guess for me, it's about, um, love and connections with people and just feeling like um, you did more to to improve people's lives or to help them feel better than you did to cause pain. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Blake, similarly, similarly to you, um, I listened to a talk um, a long time ago, probably when I was in college, about this very thing, and it had quite a bit of big impact on me of how I was living my life. Um, I also worked at the Eugene Faith Center, a church. I worked maintenance there and they would, um, they would have like funeral services there. Um, and I remember kind of sitting in on one of them or I was working right around it while people, people were talking about this guy. And it was strange to have hearing these stories about this person that I didn't know but people coming up and, and talking about him and having this like really strong connection through that and realizing you know the impact someone has on the world and, and what people are going to remember and um and so yeah i don't know i think about this often um but like you guys have said i mean i think we we try and love others well mm -hmm. we try and make impact um on the world around us and um, and try to leave this place a bit better than when we were in it, I guess. One thing my mom says um, when you talk about loving others well, um, and sorry to give up your secret, mom, uh, because my mom does listen, but <laughs> she she said, I want everyone to think they're my favorite. Like every mm -hmm. person when I'm with you, I want to love you so well that you just think you're my favorite person in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think living a life like that where people just like, you know, when I'm around Ryan, I just feel like Ryan cares for me so deeply. Like, there's no way Ryan cares for everyone else that much. But just living a life where you care beyond yourself, um, I think is... That's such a superpower. That's beautiful. And Carly put that well. I remember Carly um, talking about friends this way and, you know, Jenny especially being one of those examples of when you're around somebody and then after you've parted, are you feeling drained? Or are you feeling refreshed? Mm -hmm. You know, and Jenny was an example of somebody that just, just casts that light and love. And so you, you're driving home after you've been at visiting with, with her or, um, and you just feel really good and positive and encouraged and, um, loved. So, yeah, that's kind of the same idea of when a person calls you and you see their name, 
pop up on the phone, is your first instinct, <laughs> I'm going to answer this? Or is your first instinct, I, I, I'm just going to silence it yeah. and move on? Yeah. Blaine, what is your thought on the obituary topic? Um, my final decision is still fluid. I think that where I'm at today is that I have yet to make the greatest impact in my on the world around me at this point. I think that my greatest impacts are still to come. Um, I've I've done a lot, but I think I have a long way to go with what I can potentially do. By the way, that's a great mindset to always have. Yeah, I don't think you ever should yeah. feel like I've already made all the, my greatest impact and then I'm just coasting. Especially at our point in life, hopefully there's plenty of life left. Yep. 28 and I've yep. made it, man. I peaked in high school. <laughs> well, I... But part of the exercise in the obituary is really looking back mm -hmm. and it's retrospective. Mm -hmm. And I and what I'm saying at this point is I'm not in the position yet to be be in a position where I'm ready to rewind. Mm -hmm. That's a good well, point. I would I would challenge that though, because you have started a life with the love of your life and you have had children. And I feel like obituaries are in large part family-based and so that is a huge portion of that so just pointing mm -hmm. that out There's i also think about like routine checkups of your obituary maybe every like five or ten mm -hmm. years you could write one to your write one for yourself do your, do your feelings and goals change or have your accomplishments change drastically or whatever too oh, that's interesting we should probably let blake, yeah. blake finish yeah. <laughs> well the family was going to be one of the things that i want to be remembered for is mm -hmm. my impacts on my family and also what my own family did because I feel like I have a hand in what they're doing and that I'm influencing them. I think much like um, Ryan to live with love is very important to me and like Blake to have certain accomplishments and objectives that you're trying to meet and having those uh, be at some point that haven't yet been achieved and having those kind of in the forefront. Um, but I guess that the kind of this overall thought on the um, obituary and where we're going is that it's uh, what I would say is it's still a work in progress. And I, I like these kinds of exercises because it opens up everybody to thinking about different things and thinking about it in a slightly different way. Um, but I think that, Shannon, that's fair to challenge that and then this idea of going back every so often to look at it and you know this is kind of like periodically uh reviewing goals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's kind of that same idea because we can have we can have huge impacts in lots of areas of our life whether it be business or personal goals but i think as parents the biggest impact we have is on our family um, and so I, I just wanted to point that out as mm -hmm. like that, that may be your biggest impact in life already. Like yeah. you've done that, you've, you've started a family, um, but it's not done, but it's, know, not, it's not, it's not done. It's not done. Yeah. That's yep. true. And, and Blaine, you know, you can stop me if this is too personal and you don't want to necessarily answer, but I'm just thinking back to when you shared that your grandfather was of great influence to you and a, and a great man and, and, uh, the meaning that you struck from your relationship with him and he's no longer with us. Um, what's your perspective at looking at somebody who now is, um, 
unfortunately gone, but but is able to sort of draw back on their experiences. What stands out to you as as meaningful relationships that you had, or what do you think that he would draw from from his legacy and and values looking back? There's so many directions I can go on that, and it's a really good question. One thing I wanted to touch on with this question that I've realized in the last couple of years is when he was at the end of life, the thing that he was focused on so much was his young life and kind of those relationships he had and trying to repair any fractured relationships from his young life. And to me, that speaks to the importance of having a great impact on lives when people are kind of in these nascent stages and just realizing that that's what you're going to worry about when you're on death's doorstep, work on that now. So when you get to that point, you're not regretting anything. As far as the impacts that, as we're talking about these subjects, I've thought about him probably 16 times. So he's always on my mind as I'm thinking about these things. And I do kind of a WWJD mindset is what would he do? And is that, do I agree? Would I do the same thing? It's not that this is what he does, so I'm going to follow the same exact path. I don't agree with everything that he did. It, it's just that I agree with about 90% of what he did. Mm-hmm. So his um, obituary, the way that it was written, I love my my mom and the people that helped write it, but that wouldn't have been the headline that I... like. They put in all the important stuff, but it's so hard to capture a life in a, an obituary yeah. and to... He, what he ended up doing was these YouTube videos. Um, it was kind of a documentary type interview, but even the person that was trying to do it with him didn't capture in his full embodiment the way that some other people could have with the same stories. But there is no perfect answer. Mm-hmm. So um, when I'm living my life and I think about what I want to do, it's definitely framed by his accomplishments and, and in particular his charitable work. So he spent a lot of time helping villages in Mongolia and building cog houses so that families of 12 could have their own dwelling units. He installed thousands of wells in Vietnam so that people would have access to clean drinking water and wouldn't have to walk for three hours to get water each day. He worked with Holt International with Romanian orphanages and getting people placed in loving families in the United States. He worked with Northwest medical teams to help and deliver goods and services to other areas that were impoverished. These were really broad humanitarian goals. There is a thing that I remember him and my grandma each year would fill up a container. uh, And I'm talking about a full container like you see on the back of a train full of goods that they would ship to Romania for the orphanages. And they would do that every year and just fill it to the brim with stuff. And you think about the all of these people that they're having impacts on. It's so wild to think about these downstream consequences that are positive from just these two individuals that were doing this purely out of a place of love. And now we got to put that into an obituary. Good luck with that because <laughs> there's no way to really encapsulate everything, but all you can do is do your best in the moment and make your best decision in the moment right or wrong all you can do is go off the information that you have and then try and live in that way yeah well and even your obituary no one is ever going to know you like your wife or your kids knew you 
Um, but I think this is a good exercise to go through. What is your overarch- overarching legacy, you know? And, and so I think two thoughts as we kind of wrap towards closing here with this is, A, yeah, ask yourself, what, what will someone say at my funeral or what will someone write in my obituary? And then B, um, there's this saying, um, memento mori, and it basically it means you have to die or there's going to be a moment of death. And so Shannon mentioned earlier, maybe you do this annually or every few years. I think it's easy to say like, oh, yeah, when I die, I'll have a legacy. But it's like you could die tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know. And so reflect, like ask yourself, if I were to die tomorrow, what are people going to say about me? And a year or two from now, is that story going to be the same? Um, because I think for myself when I was younger, it was like, oh yeah, I have a lot of life left to figure it out. But then when you realize, I don't know, it it could all end tomorrow. I think you, you need to think about that and then live every day with that intention. And I'm going to have step away. Thank you guys for allowing me to share with you guys this week. Um, I am a little nervous about leaving because the last time I left, it devolved into some pretty scandalous topics so poop poop stories you you can't you don't have time to tell yours i'm going to leave you guys for this week and then if you guys choose to go off the rails again please feel free because i'll listen in (laughs) (laughs) sounds good thanks blaine yeah um this is an interesting conversation right now um the timing is is funny for me um first of all um I don't think I'd want to write my, my obituary either. I think I'd want it to be like a mixture of, you know, my children, um, my wife, if she's still alive Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the time, whenever that this is. And, uh, yeah, probably, probably them. Um, I'm working with, working with my audio right now because I realized it was bad earlier. So I'm trying to fix, fix it up. Um, but, oh, also I have my funeral song picked out. (laughs) Yeah. Let's hear it. It's called. Can you sing it? <laughs> when it is my time to go, <laughs> go ahead and take me home. No, I'll be with you. Um, it's it's called Beautiful Eulogy by Beautiful Eulogy. <laughs> it's a it's a actually Christian band. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. Christian group. Um, in your little rendition there, that's what I was picking up on. Very nice. Yeah, and it's, it's you should go and listen to it. It's it's, it's really good. Um, but the reason that the timing is really funny for this is because. Last night, as I was putting the girls down, um, in Blaine and I's conversation that we had, just him and I, that we recorded recently, um, I talked about when I put the girls down and it's just dark in the room and it's, you know, my mind kind of explodes during that time with like creative thought. And one of the things that popped up uh, in my mind last night was my mom and her struggle with dementia. And... I was just thinking back to the mom that I know that I grew up with, um, how amazing she was. You know, I mentioned earlier, my family had a lot of um, bad habits and that kind of stuff, but like, there's no doubt my parents absolutely loved, loved us children and did everything they could for us. And, uh, and dementia has just, you know, it just changed, changes someone so much. Um, And so I actually had the idea of like starting kind of not an obituary but a a eulogy and so i actually started writing my mother's eulogy last night oh wow um and i don't know when that time will come for her um my guess is in the next two to five years at some point um hopefully later than sooner but i wanted to start it last night just because whenever i have those 
amazing thoughts of her. I want to be able to put those thoughts down. And mm-hmm. so I just started a note um, with, you know, when I was thinking about her strongly. And uh, I guess I'll just add to it as time goes. But uh, yeah, so it's been weird timing for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but like remembering her for who she really is, you kind of have to erase this time of her life and dementia is such a thief like that, that Mm -hmm. you, I mean, they're, they're not the same person. So you're really looking Mm -hmm. back at who they were and that's where the eulogy, the obituary is going to be pulled from. It's strange. And I think it's something like natural in our human instincts or behavior that it seems like it's not until something is final that it gains more attention and attraction. And think about like how many musicians or artists really blew up after a sudden death or an unexpected passing or something like that. And so maybe it's just a good reminder to take note and appreciation of people that exist in our lives before they're gone. And as we were talking about this, I think about how I've been really fortunate that I've, I've lost some relatives, but I've got very many close relatives that are still with us today. And some of them, um, you know, health is changing and time is is uh, ticking on as it does for all of us but I want to be able to reflect and remember and appreciate um, people before the the time comes where they're no longer and I think about um, my grandparents in this example and um, one thing I'll always remember is just their their warm home and their welcoming environment for everybody and that they really took family and love as priority over everything else. And that is really um, one way I could, I guess, visualize that is that when I was young, well, they, they've always had this big Christmas tradition of um, all the stockings up on the wall, my grandparents, you know, and um, there was always a little something in there for everybody. And even if you were married in or you weren't um you know, part of the family by blood, you, you were going to make a representation on the wall with a stocking. And I just think about over the years, how much that has exploded from, you know, maybe eight, 10, 12 stockings to 40 or 50 over their, their lifetime. And it just, uh, that welcoming, caring home and the lives that have been created through their culture. But, um, yeah just a testament to to family and love over everything else mm-hmm. that's good i think fostering to traditions is a big thing that you reflect on those are the things you remember about you know family or your parents or your grandparents or whatever and and so as you develop relationships whether it's within your family or with your friends establishing traditions things that people look forward to and that have a special place in their heart is part of your legacy and the things that last for a long time. That's something I love about my father-in-law is that he's really good at celebrating people and having traditions. And um, yeah, it's something I'm trying to get better at and do better and celebrate people better and celebrate things and times better. Um, But takes effort takes time it does and it's a skill you develop over time and yeah and that's something whether it's an in-law or your parent or your sibling or a friend you see these great characteristics in people and don't look at those as oh wow um that person's so fortunate or whatever but but try and embody the things that you admire 
you know, and ask them, how do you go about that, et cetera. And, and so I think those are, those are great thoughts for this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this one got deep, guys. <laughs> deep. We started, it was a redemption from the last episode that, <laughs> that we, we released. Start, we surfaced with urine and we finished deep. We started with the beginning of life. True. And we concluded with the end. True. And we'll see what next week has in store. Yep, we will. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time.